the sun was shining, military bands played, crowds lined the streets, guns sounded in nearby parks, the soldiers marched in perfect step ahead of the hearse, the royal family and the king followed behind. It was an extraordinary display of regal British glory. Uh, we often use that word, don't we, glory, to describe moments of great sporting success or an amazing goal, or um, something beautiful that we see in the world around us, a, a fantastic sunset. But glory in the Bible is a deeper and richer and weightier and more beautiful thing than even a, a fantastic goal, or a beautiful sunset, or, to be honest, the impressive pageantry that the British are the best. At no one else is imagined for them. Glory is a quality that belongs to God alone. It's the, the heavy weight of his godness. It's the unique, deep, rich magnificence of his deity. Prophet Isaiah describes it in this vision he has of God. So let me just read to you from Isaiah chapter 6. He says, In the year that King Isaiah died, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on the throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, angels, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they called to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And at the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Later on in the book of Isaiah, God says of himself, he says, I am the Lord, that is my name, and my glory I will not give to another. It's the exclusive otherness of God. He shares it with no one and nothing else. But the unique claim of the Christian faith, the unique claim of, of John's gospel in particular, is that God has displayed his glory, the heavy weight of his goodness, his godness, in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. He says at the very beginning of the book, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory. And our passage today is another key moment in John's HD presentation of God's glory displayed through Jesus Christ. Judas has just left that final meal. He's gone out to betray Jesus. And with Judas gone, Jesus tells his remaining disciples everything. The life he's lived, the death he's about to die, the road ahead are all a part of his magnificent display of God's glory. Now we may believe in Jesus this morning, many of us do. We may not yet believe, but we're here today, we're thinking, well I'm willing to think about it further. Whoever we are, let us spend some time diving into the glory of Jesus. Let's spend some time looking at how he displays the magnificent heavyweight Godness of God. There is so much to discover. First of all, Jesus displays God's glory through his death that secures our place in heaven. Through his death that secures our place in heaven. Verse 31. When he was gone, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, 
God will glorify the Son in himself and will glorify him at once. We are reluctant, generally, aren't we, to speak of death. We speak in euphemisms to describe death. So we say, her late majesty has passed away. We don't want to use blunt language to describe death. And Jesus, in a way, is speaking similarly. He doesn't name death here, but that is exactly what he's talking about. Judas' departure makes Jesus' death an imminent certainty. You see that? It is going to happen now, at once. But Jesus' death will be unlike any other death ever. It is a moment of extraordinary glory because of what it will achieve. Let's read on verse 33. My children, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me. And just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now, where I am going, you cannot come. It's the ultimate statistic, isn't it? One out of one die. Every death is both expected and unique in its own way. But Jesus' death is uniquely planned and uniquely meaningful. He's going to a place where his disciples cannot come. What is that place? The place where he will lie down, lay down his life for the sins of the whole world. Verse 34. A new command I give you. Love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. By this everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Well, the first time we read those verses, we think it's a bit of an interruption. It, it's, it's like jars at the flow of the passage. But Jesus moves from talk of his going away to his disciples remaining behind. When he's no longer with them, they must love each other as he has loved them. And if you remember, he's already given a dramatic visual aid of that in chapter 13 when he washed their feet. And he took the lowliest place of the servant and he says, you must do the same. And he would explore this theme of self-sacrificial love in much more detail in chapter 15. But for now, his command that they love each other is a bit of a trailer. It's another angle on his imminent death. The sacrificial love they must show each other when he is gone will point them back to his once for all sacrifice for sin. Do they get it? Can they read between the lines? Sort of, but not fully. Verse 36. Simon Peter asked him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus replied, where I am going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Then Jesus answered, would you really lay down your life for me? Very truly, I tell you, before the cock crows, you will disown me three times. So first of all, Jesus clarifies Peter's confusion. Even if Peter is beginning to sense that Jesus is going to die, and I think he is beginning to sense that, he doesn't yet understand that Jesus' death is going to be uniquely meaningful. So he can't follow, although he will follow later. Jesus then punctures Peter's bravado. Jesus says he will die for Jesus. Peter says he will die for Jesus. Jesus says, you will die for me, you will deny me. Jesus will die utterly alone. But with that dark cloud hanging over the conversation, Jesus then changes the, the music, the, the mood music of the conversation. And he brings in words of extraordinary comfort and hope. Because his death will not be meaningless. It's uniquely meaningful. It is a death that secures his disciples' place in heaven. Chapter 14. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, 
believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. For that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I'm going. And the King James Version famously translates it as many mansions in the Father's house. And that sounds very appealing, but it's not really what Jesus is talking about. He's not talking about the quality of accommodation in heaven, but the quantity of it. There is more than enough space for everyone who believes. And more than that, Jesus has booked the space and paid for it by his death on the cross. Jesus doesn't, he's not saying I'm going to go to heaven to make the bed to put the kettle on. He's using picture language to describe the effect of his death. He will die to take sin upon himself. He will bear the full weight of God's justice against sin in his body. He will die in our place. He will be our substitute. It's described elsewhere, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Or as we sang at the very beginning, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish and have eternal life. I wonder if you're sitting here this morning and you know those things. Maybe you're not yet sure about Jesus. Maybe you just can't quite get your head around what his death meant. You look at it and you think, what a, what a waste. We went to, um, I took my son to see Hamilton yesterday at the theatre. Um, it was the second time I'd seen it, the first time he'd seen it. And um, one of the last songs about Alexander Hamilton, his wife sings, and he says, what a waste. You were so young, you could have achieved so much more. Maybe you sit here and you look at Jesus' death and you think, what a waste, you could have achieved so much more. Or, or maybe you do believe that you do love the truth that Jesus died for you in your place. But if you're honest, the truth of that just sits on the surface of your heart. And, it, and you know it, it could sink so much deeper. Other things than Jesus' death seem so much more precious, so much more wonderful to us so much of the time. So how about praying that God would show us his glory a little bit more? We look at the cross and we think he secured my place in heaven. What a wonderful, glorious thing. Jesus displays God's glory through his death that secures our place in heaven. But maybe we're still not certain. Maybe we've still got questions and we don't know where the answers are. Well, in that case, we're just a little bit like Jesus' first disciples. Because Thomas has got a question and Philip has got a question. So let's move on. Second, Jesus displays God's glory through his full revelation of the Father. Through his full revelation of the Father. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. So how can you know the way? You can almost sense his frustration, can't you? Uh, but Jesus still won't give Thomas and the rest of the disciples a straight answer. And he, he changes the imagery, actually. He says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Well, I wonder what you would say is your defining moment of revelation for the Queen. Maybe it's that, um, probably not for many of us who weren't alive, maybe it's that speech she made on her 21st birthday. Maybe it's the speech she made after the death of Diana. Maybe it's her appearance with James Bond in 2012 or with Paddington Bear earlier this year. Several moments of decisive revelation when we got to see 
the kind of person she was. But for Jesus Christ, there is only one moment of decisive revelation, if you like, for God. Only one person of decisive revelation is his son. The life, death and resurrection of Jesus. If you really know me, you will know my father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. See, Thomas has protested. He says, we don't know the way. And Jesus sets him straight. He says, I am the only way to God. I'm the true way. There's no other. I'm the way of life. All other ways lead to death. I am the way and the truth and the life. And notice that the way isn't a path. It's a person. And it's Jesus himself. And notice that the destination isn't really a place. It's not really heaven. It's a person too. It's the Father. John Bunyan describes it brilliantly in, in his allegory of the Christian life, Pilgrim's Progress. A Christian is on the way to the celestial city and he spots these two characters climbing over the wall to get into the way. They're called formalist and hypocrisy. And he tells them, you can't do that. You've got to start at the beginning. You've got to come through the gates. And they say to him, what's matter which way we get in? If we are in, we are in. Thou art in the way, who, as we perceive, came in at the gate. And we also are in the way that came tumbling over the wall. Where in man is thou condition better than ours? In other words, they say to him, who cares how you get to heaven? As long as you're on the way there. What does it matter what path you take? Jesus says the way we take, the path we take, matters more than anything else in the world. We may be sincere and genuine in our desire to get to heaven, but we may be sincerely and genuinely wrong. Rich and I were doing some inviting on Friday in the community, inviting people to a bar. We met lots of people from another faith, sincere and genuine. Sincere, sincerely, and genuinely wrong. This Christian says to his fellow pilgrims, I will walk by the rule of my master. You walk by the rude working of your fancies. You are counted thieves already by the Lord of the way. Therefore, I doubt that you will not be found true men at the end of the way. You see, we can't get to heaven under our own steam, or even by trying to make sure that we're in the right queue. News is all about queues. We need to look at Jesus and ensure that he is in us. He's the path. He must be in us. Because Jesus displays God's glory through his unique revelation of the Father. We don't need to look anywhere else, even if that is hard to grasp. Philip said, verse 8, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip? Even after I have been among you such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? You see, Jesus' words are beyond comprehension to Philip. But they're not incomprehensible. It's the simple and profound and uncomfortable claim of Christianity. Jesus is God himself, the, the creator of the universe, physically seen, physically touched, the decisive, once for all, final revelation of the Father. It is beyond belief. We'll never get our heads around it fully. But it's not unbelievable. Because the evidence of history backs up the claim. You see verse 10. Don't you believe that I am in the Father 
and that the Father is in me. The words I say to you I do not speak on my own authority. Rather it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. What did Jesus do? He claimed to be the light of the world. And he opened the eyes of a man born blind. He came to be the bread of life and he fed a crowd of 5,000 men with a few loaves of bread and fish. He claimed to be the resurrection of the life and then he spoke outside his friend's tomb. Lazarus, come out. And he came out. See, neither Philip nor anyone else is expected to have blind, irrational faith. The evidence of Jesus' life proves beyond all reasonable doubt that he was not simply an extraordinary man. He was God himself. As he'd said before in chapter 5, the works the Father has given me to finish, the very works that I am doing, testify that the Father has sent me. So Jesus looks back and looks at the evidence of his life. But he's also got an eye on the future too when he's talking about his works. Water into wine, sight to the blind, raising the dead, they are all pointers towards the most decisive work of all, his death and resurrection on the cross. And he invites Philip to believe. He says to you and me as well today, believe. Jesus' whole life work, culminating at the cross and the empty tomb, display God's glory. He fully reveals the Father. So he looks back to his work. He looks forward to the cross and the empty tomb. And then remarkably, actually, he looks further forward to it. Because God's glory didn't stop being displayed when Jesus rose from the dead. It continues to be displayed through history as his disciples put their trust in him. And that's our final lesson. Thirdly and finally, Jesus displays God's glory through his promise to answer our prayers. Through his promise to answer our prayers. Verse 12. Very truly I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing, and they will do even greater things than these, because I am going to the Father. Well, there was a time when it was hard to imagine anyone ever being a better tennis player than Roger Federer announced his retirement this week. Anyone ever getting more Grand Slam titles than him. But already the other two men on the screen have gone past him. But if Nadal and Djokovic's achievements seemed unlikely or impossible, how can Jesus say that his disciples will do greater things than him? You can't get greater than raising the dead. Well, the clue is at the end of verse 12. He says, They will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father. Why is Jesus going to the Father? To pay for sin. Jesus is not talking about signs and wonders. He is talking about the hidden, extraordinary forgiveness of sin in the human heart. And he speaks about this later on. Uh, to his disciples after he's been raised from the dead. But at chapter 20, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. He gives them a little picture there of the work that they will spend the rest of their lives doing, proclaiming the good news of Jesus dying in their place so that their sins could be forgiven and inviting sinners all over the world to put their trust in him. That is the greater work. Christian disciples have done extraordinary things throughout history and still continue to do so. But there's no greater work to be involved in than this, proclaiming the good news that sins are forgiven in Jesus. 
Jesus' great work was to die for sin. Our greater work is to speak of him and proclaim his gospel. Isn't that extraordinary and mind-blowing? His great work was to die for sin. Our greater work is to proclaim the good news of that gospel. And if we work at it and pray about it, we can be sure that our prayers will be answered. Verse 13. And I will do whatever you ask in my name, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. Jesus is giving us a litmus test for our prayers. Are we praying as he would? Are our desires aligned with his? He's not guaranteeing that every time we pray for someone who doesn't know Jesus, that they're going to come to know him. But the big picture promise is still true. Jesus went to the Father so that sins could be forgiven. And our great work is sharing that message and to keep praying for our families and friends and our community and, and the friends and people in our home group and the people that our mission partners are, are trying to minister to and to the world. And next time we're struggling to pray for someone to come to faith, this, this is a wonderful motivation. Jesus glorifies the Father by answering those prayers. He displays God's glory through his promise to answer prayer. So let's keep praying that he would. We've seen um, this, this last week an extraordinary display of British, Brit, British glory in the funeral processions and, and the like. And no doubt tomorrow will be extraordinary as well. And we'll look back on it and we'll think, wasn't that amazing? But Jesus' display of God's glory puts every display of human glory in the shade. He died to secure our place in heaven. He lived and died and rose again to fully reveal the Father and he, he reigns today answering our prayers. So may those truths sink deeper and deeper into our hearts. May we be more and more confident that our place in heaven is secure. That we do know the Father if we know Jesus Christ the Son. And that our prayers will be answered if we pray in his name for the things that he wants many others to come to know him too. Should we bow our heads and pray? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that Jesus displays your glory. He is the full, final revelation of God. He, he secures our place in heaven. He promises to answer our prayer. And we pray that you would give us a bigger picture of him in our hearts and minds. And we pray that that would motivate us more and more to live for him. For we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to invite Vicky to come and